appears harmless, but it it's not. It's going to have consequences. Yeah, racism is not harmless. Racism is insidious, and like we need to name it in the it's racism. Um, to use the terms of like black queer brothers and sisters, it is death dealing. Racism is death dealing. I, I need everybody to hear church, that. These be like, the notes I'm putting in my, it I'm is. putting it in my notes. I'm Dr. Sharon Dukes. And I'm Melvin Dukes. We're HBC graduates. Proud educators. And most importantly, husband, husband and wife. wife. And you're listening to After School, School Talk, Talk Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of After School Talk, where I am your co-host, Mr. Dukes, and you are Dr. Dukes. Hello, Dr. Dukes. Hey, how are you? Good, good, good. <laughs> you are smiling super hard tonight. I am smiling super hard. You know why? Because it's the day after your it's birthday. It's the day after my birthday. <laughs> Just turned a big three five in the thing. Just turned three five, baby. But I can't even I can't even recognize my age as being thirty five. I'm gonna not recognize it as five, five years, years from forty. 40. <laughs> like how old are you? I'm five years from forty. <laughs> I'm, I'm really about to be forty in five years. <laughs> like I hope these next five years go slow, slow but exciting. Slow but exciting. Yes. Slow but I exciting. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. Everything's gonna be. Copacetic. I'm definitely hoping so. Don't even know what copacetic really means. Everything but it felt like what I wanted to say. Everything is all good. Everything okay. All so, good. all right, that's good. We glad it's your birthday. Okay, moving on. <laughs> we got to go ahead and get into this episode. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm so Ain't excited. That's why I'm cheesing. So, this episode right here, um, I'm going to tell you right now what I'm thinking of titling it. I am thinking of calling it Dear White People. Okay. Um, as a dedication to the show on Netflix, Dear White People, mm-hmm. because... um. It takes place uh, on a college campus. They're dealing with cultural issues. And our next guest for this episode is doing just that right now. He is a special person in our lives. He was the former director of student activities at my college. He he is my mentor. He is the goddaughter of our child. He did our wedding. Yes, 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 yes. Run the list and we got it. Yes. (laughs) So tonight we have... Sean Palmer. Sean Palmer Woo! in the building. Sean Palmer, where is it? Now, now he ain't going, now he acting up. Now he don't want to show himself. Now he don't hey, want to. There you go. <laughs> Fashionably late to the podcast. <laughs> A 10 second well, delay. Well, you know, got to make an entrance. <laughs> Happy birthday, Melvin Dukes. How you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing great. I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing excellent. Why are y'all turning 35? Y'all supposed to be in y'all 20s I so know. I can maintain my 30s. Right. Y'all are ahead of What are y'all doing? Y'all messing up. I'm about to be old. I remember your 35th uh, oh, surprise dude. birthday party we did for you. Lord, pray. Pray, Saint. Pray. Uh, he said, I'm a changed man from that, though. I ain't going back to doing that no more. I ain't that changed. I'm not that changed. I'm not that change. Oh, Y'all gonna have to work work on my He's heart. He's still Lord, working don't. on you. He's still working on you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> okay, so Sean Palmer, you have yes. worked in student affairs for a good minute, right? I have worked in higher education for fifteen years. Wow. Fifteen, sixteen years. Okay, so what's, um, what all and, have you done with higher yeah. ed? Huh? What all have you done with higher education? 
Okay, I have been a director of student activities. I've been a director of residence life. I've been a dorm. I've worked in the dorms. I have served in cultural centers. I have worked on judicial affairs. I really should be a vice chancellor or vice president by now, but we just gonna let the Lord move. Um, <laughs> but I have, but I have been a kind of a jack of all trades in higher education, starting out, and then over the last eight plus years, my career has moved into diversity and inclusion, which in some places is a, you know, it is a. Um, as a, as a colleague, it can be a collegial relationship with uh, student affairs and student activities and, and all of the amazing pieces there. But my And now I'm teaching as well. So I'm also teaching in the classroom. I'm teaching in Africana Studies. Yes. Mm, yes. Right. Now, you, you mentioned that now you are teaching, but when I met you, <laughs> you... <laughs> You, I was also you teaching. were also teaching. <laughs> you were also the director of student activities and the director of housing and residence life. Yes, and do you remember you told me I was doing too much and that I needed to stop teaching and don't let the and um and that the kids didn't need my services and you weren't coming back to my office till I graded my paper. Do you remember you told me that? I, I listen. I, I had to. <laughs> Literally <laughs> apologized to Palmer once I started working in student affairs because I was like, these kids are driving me crazy. They keep asking me questions. Yep. They need me every hour of the night, every hour of the day. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I did to Palmer. Yeah, yeah. You got your taste of it. Yeah, yeah. You got your taste We would come in his office and if he was grading papers or getting ready for his classes, like, um, no. We here. We, um, put we that have on. homecoming mm-hmm. and a pageant and... Yep. We don't care about these little English students. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't have been teaching, but the, I think the teacher had died. Somebody had died or gone to the mm. hospital and they weren't going to be back the rest of the semester. And they needed somebody to teach the English classes. And I was like, okay, I can teach an Africana studies version. They was like, fine, uh, you're going to have to teach two sections. I was like, well, how much money am I going to make? And they was like, uh, you work at the HBCU. <laughs> this, is- <laughs> this, this is just another hat you got to put on. Ain't no more, ain't no, ain't more no money. Yeah, ain't no more ain't money. No, no more money. Put this hat on. <laughs> you are right. Yep. I forgot that's how you ended up over there. Cause that same teacher that died gave me that C. That's yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, and that ain't give me no more money. And I was young and dumb, and I was just trying to build my resume. So I just did whatever I could so that I could so that I could be marketable. Right. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Got it. So you went on and you also did residence life and then um, now you're working in a, in a multicultural center, which we're going to get into in depth. Absolutely. But I know a lot of our sure. audience are K-12 educators. So um, I want them to hear you talk about just what, in general, the student affairs side of a college campus is there for as far as helping students. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the challenges with stu- with um, K through 12 is that we really don't do a good job of educating students on race, class, gender, sexuality. And so students are having major identity crises coming out of high school going into college. I mean, even, you know, they're having those early crises, even if they don't go to college and particularly living in a world that is super divisive. Um, and so like, you're leaving these school systems that have made you read Shakespeare, that have taught you a Pythagorean theorem, but now you're working in an environment where you not, might not get hired if you got too many Qs or As, or your name is like Shinoqua or some mess like that. Like you're, you are living in a world where race and gender 
and your sexuality have implications for the kinds of life you can live. And so one of the things that I would say that we do in the multi, in a multicultural centers or cultural centers, what we're now using the language of identity centers is kind of the newest language, um, is that we are seeking to help people, not just the students that we serve intentionally, like a Black student or a Latinx student or LGBT student or an Asian student, but we're seeking to help the university, our university systems have a stronger understandings of race praxis um, so that we can develop um, leaders for the world to mock for the world that we actually live in so that they're not making stupid mistakes like some of the companies like Gucci have made over the years with like making like things that look like that look like stereo walking stereotypes like clothing that looks like stereotypes or art that looks like stereotypes or they have you know they're you know they have these horrible jokes um, and so that's one part of the work. The other part of the work is retention, uh, which is what we do in student affairs, right? So it's a retention effort. It's identity and crisis development. It's also advocacy. Um, in my role on my campus, I also handle some scholarships and I teach. I have you know, I teach in a classroom setting um, and I am, you know, and, and when we're not in a COVID crisis, I will take students on trips. So like I am really doing the kind of, um, I would say catch up work so that students can have healthy understandings of identity rather than what Zora Neale Hurston said, where they are, they have sorrow damned up in the corners of their eyes um, and they don't know that they are beautifully black. Like they're not black or are beautiful, that they are black and beautiful. We're trying to create that space for them. That's amazing. Um, it's, it's, interesting because you are speaking to a void that is in K through 12. <laughs> um, recently they just showed where I think it's two incidents we just saw on Twitter. One where the two uh, white high school students were pretending like they were making a nigga in a, in a sink and pouring the water. Yep, in. I saw it. And then another situation <laughs> where a girl like was calling somebody a nigga on Snapchat. And what was interesting is that I, I told Melvin, I said, I can guarantee you the students of that school are not surprised. Right, not surprised. They're not surprised at all. They're like, yeah, this is what we deal with at school, but mm-hmm. it hasn't been placed on a video to go viral. And now everyone is like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But there's no space for students like that in K-12 to even speak up and say something. Well, and you don't have a whole lot of educators in K through 12, unless they're at Afrocentric schools or Hispanic speaking schools, like, I mean, Hispanic heritage schools or indigenous, native native and indigenous private schools or, or like schools that have other kinds of variables where race or identity becomes an important part of the curriculum. And I think, I mean, like, the but the truth of the matter is like racial, race education in in edu- in education has been a part of the curriculum um, intentionally since the 1960s. Um, when you get Africana studies and women and gender studies programs coming online right at the right at the start of Vietnam and as as integration is happening in schools, and so it's really problematic that school systems will seek to educate Black students or Latinx students our LGBT students have a whole cadre of students sitting in classrooms and really never talk about literature, histories that really face, that really affect the identities of the students that they're serving. And so they kind of stay on this kind of European, this heteronormative European paradigm 
that really honestly is foreign to a student who is being called a nigger mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. or is having to think about how their rap music has different implications for their multi-ethnic friends. So the white friends can say it, but the Latino friends and the Latino friends, if they black can say it, but not the, you know, but not the Asians, not the white, you know, so like there's all of these kind of variables. And I think one of the challenges in in public education is that enough, uh, not enough teachers are trained in identity formation, which is kind of what your, um, one of your colleagues said, I guess, was it last week or the week before last? Um, who was on talking about race from kind of white identity perspectives. Right, right, yes, yes. Because he, it was, it was interesting that him talking about being in a counselor program, we're discussing things like white identity, white fra- fragility, um, white privilege, and it's like, okay, I'm recognizing my space and how that can affect my students, but what teaching program, or are teaching programs really focused on that? Like I never, I, mm. I, well, Melvin, you got a master's in teaching. Do you remember? Like, let's have a class on race. Definitely not race. Um, disability and stuff like that. Uh, age groups, you know, learning levels, learning styles, and stuff like that. But the race and all that, no. Um, even we, I think we were even taught about um dealing with a person's personal uh sexual preference. Um, uh, you know, whether they're gay, straight, lesbian, bisexual, whatever. I think we even talked about that, but to say that we talked about race um, and how to deal with that in the classroom, not at all. <clears throat> not at all. That's that's crazy, because then we go into Palmer's world where that is literally... That is, well, Palmer, and Palmer, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but being on a campus, I feel that multicultural centers or identity centers is becoming the... Um, if your campus doesn't have it, why you're behind. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that's so funny about like the era of Black Lives Matter, Trump, the LGBT era, this new era of like um, inspired activism, I mean, that we're living in by, with students um, and educators is that it has renewed the necessity for cultural centers to exist. A lot of, I mean, in the last 20 years, we had seen a decline in cultural centers um, particularly as they've been um, consolidated to be turned into multicultural centers. And now what's happening out of, you know, because of the hunger strike in Missouri, the strike in, the strike in Oklahoma, the strike in Syracuse, what you see is this reemergence of the need for fuller, full development of cultural centers in spaces where 80, 90% of the educators, 90% of the staffs are white. And so, like, you have new cultural centers that have come online um, in, like, Oregon and Utah. And I'm in, I'm in conversation with both of those directors, one of which is from Atlanta and the other one is from New York. And, like, they're super dope people. Um, and so, like, they have just opened cultural centers, um, black cultural centers. So, like, you don't just get multicultural centers. You get, like, centers that are being opened that really speak to a specific intersection so that the so that you don't so that we don't make it one big thing and like we just assume like the experiences of indigenous folk are the same as the experiences of black folk which are the same as the experiences of poor folk which are the same as the experiences of lgbt folk and so like that education is becoming more important and what students sometimes don't know is that like 
when you want to go work at like in a major company downtown and like in New York or DC or some major area, that education, your ability to understand and work with lots of different kinds of people, including going to med school and law school, is going to mean that you're going to have to be solidly, um, and your and your homeboy said it last week, like you're going to have to, he, he called it um, um, culturally conscious, but I'm going to use the language of culturally fluid. Mm. You're going to need to be culturally fluid in order to be a part of the 21st century workforce. Um, because you don't get to opt out of not knowing what transgender experiences look like. You don't get to opt out of not knowing that black experiences are different um, from from white experiences in the world. And it's not just that we are experiencing oppression, that but we have a nuanced we have nuanced cultural traditions, plural, that require you to either to make time to know us or you need to go sit out somewhere. Mm. Say that. <laughs> Say that or have a seat. <laughs> and you know what? It's interesting because um going to an HBCU, I'll say I and, and I know, Palmer, your experience was you went to a predominantly white institution and then grad school went to HBCU. So... And overdosed. <laughs> and I almost never went back to PWIs. <laughs> <laughs> too much. It's too much. <laughs> and I might not go back if they pay me some money. I would come back great. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. But I can remember oh, if you told me when I was a student at HBCU that you work at a multicultural center and that specifically you work with black students, I would go, why? Like, what? What's, what do you need that for? I'm so lost. What's the point? Yeah. And then and- I went to a PWI. Oh, <laughs> baby. I called my mama probably the second week of campus and said, mama, I am black. And she was like, I know, baby. No, mama, mama, no, no, no. <laughs> I am 100% black because like you said, there are experiences that everyone else does not have literally based on your skin color. Right. And so when I would get to class and I had a student, uh, a professor one time asked me where um, another student was who happened to be a black girl. And I, it, it, at first I was just like, I don't know. But then when the professor walked off, I was like, what you ask me yeah, for? Why you ask me? Why I got five other people in this <laughs> class. Oh, like, why you had to ask me? Right, that she ain't my home girl. Home girl, we ain't like, like that. We don't walk together. We don't come in class together. What you asking me <laughs> right. for? Right. Oh. Well, y'all was at the y'all was at the black committee meeting ten minutes right. ago before y'all walked right. in. Y'all was eating fried chicken and watermelon together. Surely yeah. you know. So surely you know where she's at. Didn't come to class, Shaniqua. Mm-hmm. Correct. <laughs> like my name is Correct. And then I had another time a classmate. Um. Asked me had I did my assignment for a class. And I was like, for what class? And she was like, you know, OAG, which was Organization and Governance. And I was like... And you weren't even in that class for you. I wasn't even in that class. I'm not even in that <laughs> class. She just knew one of the black girls in the class with me. <laughs> oh, y'all different black girls. I couldn't tell. Oh, my God. This one has locks. I thought you had a purse. <laughs> Is that your real hair? I don't know what's going on. And then the next so, day, let me touch it. so let me so let's name that for a second let's teach the people some so that's called a microaggression right Mm -hmm. and microaggressions are those small things that add that end up adding up to making a space and they are a part of institutionally racist spaces right Mm -hmm. and so like unfortunately predominantly white spaces because they centralize whiteness and white students and particularly heteronormative white male students 
they 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 center that kind of student. So everything else is kind of like odd and ancillary, right? Mm-hmm. And so so of course I don't know your name because it's not you not you don't really you don't really matter, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. This education that I'm giving is really not based on you. It's not going to help you in the workplace. This education is for white students, white male students, and white women students who are going to be doing this work. And these are the things and skills that they need. And if we get the race, like if we get to some black stuff, I'll ask you your opinion and let you teach us about how to do Kwanzaa so that we won't mm. look dumb, right? Right. But the reality is those micro, those things add up. Those things can be tiring and they create what we call the black tax, which means that black professionals, black students, black staff members are doing extra work in product to be in predominantly white spaces without the pay Um, that they are that black students are not students. They end up being uh, professors. I offer that sometimes like black students and white spaces are lab rats in order for white students to be able to work with other kinds of black people um, in the future. So like, you know, they're going to do, they're going to say dumb stuff to you. They're going to learn, they're going to, they're going to have to figure out skin tone in with you. They're going to have to figure out how to say Sharon rather than Sharon, or they're going to have to, you know, consider that Melvin just because Melvin is tall and dark skinned, that he's not some scary, sketchy local who doesn't belong on Georgia Tech's campus, right? Like they're going to have to figure that out. And so on some level, black students who are in integrated spaces pay the price for going to PWIs. Wait, Sean Paul, wait. Straight up fact. All all three of us have definitely had that experience of just, like you said, being that lab rat and being placed yeah. into a situation, and now it's almost like not literally picking at you, but you kind right. of feel that tension. Like, <laughs> let's see what the black girl got to say. Let's see what the black boy gonna do. Let's right. see what they thinking. Let's see da da da. And then, I, like you just said, they gonna say something that you looking like that was so stupid. But in their mind, right. it's like, oh, I was just asking a question. I'm just trying to, you know, see see how you're feeling and what you're thinking da da da. But it's like. Bro, don't even come at me like that. Just back <laughs> up. Just chill. Give me some space. Yeah. But you are absolutely right. Oh, that's all absolutely right. That's right. good. And I think I think what what what's what's worse is that they see those experiences in isolation. Like they see them as one off experience, right. right? Like they don't see like a microaggression as the experience of just every day. Like every day, you got to deal with somebody saying something out of the way. You got to watch your tone you got to be you got to watch how you go how your posture mm-hmm. you got to change your voice like and all of those like all of those words all of those things have words right that describe those things so you got to you got to change your clothing so that you look like once upon a time when we were colored um and you got to wear the nice USC t-shirt or you got to wear the Georgia Tech t-shirt so that people will see you as a person so that's a conscious decision you got to make before you even get to class then once you get then once you get up and do your hair you got to figure out what hairstyle will they not put their hands in Woo! all right i'm going to wrap it up all right i'm going to you know i'm going to wear a ball cap because i know it's a little it's it's unfresh my hair needs to be cut again Right. Or I know I gotta or I know I gotta take extra books. I gotta get there early so I can sit in the front of the class so the professor doesn't overlook me. Then on top of that, like then you gotta be called your so you're Sharon, but now people think you Shira or you think they think you some other person. Mm-hmm. So then there's that microaggression. Then somebody's gonna be like, Well, well now that you're in class, uh let's talk about now we wanna talk a little bit about like 
hierarchy of needs. Now, Sharon, how do hierarchy of needs work for Black people? <laughs> well, aren't you the expert professor? So you tell us how it works for Black <laughs> people. On. Here's the answer for white professors. Well, that's not my area of expertise. I was just hoping you had an answer for the class. But you are not getting paid to teach the class, Sharon. You're not a TA. You're not in the PhD. Like, you're not, like, that's not your job to go to classes. So, so like, what white people see as one-off experiences is actually black folk spending almost damn near eight to 10 hours of preparation and code switching in order to be in predominantly white spaces, yeah. which is why some of them can't come out of it without their good, with their good righteous mind. And which is one of the reasons why students leave their classrooms and run to the cultural center so that they can have joy, so they can be more authentic, mm-hmm. so they can have like they can discuss like what they saw so that they can make sense of readings that are not meant for them um and like and and yeah like those are some of the reasons why cultural centers exist they're not just places where students are like being you know giving kisses and hugs and told you can do it like that we you know our spaces can be charismatic like that and they can be like resilient but some of those spaces are also teaching spaces they're teaching students how to manage code switching and how to deal with like the psychology of, of of whiteness thinking that you are less than in a classroom of peers who think that you already on you only you don't deserve to be here because you took up some real smart white kid space mm-hmm. who deserves to be here and not you right like that's the kind of weird common sense racism that you, that we are fighting daily in pwi spaces right and, and like you said it's a microaggression where you don't realize that it's happening daily every class or every space i go into and hence why the cultural center is my safe haven i i didn't i didn't even put the two to two together until recently of me being comfortable with myself on a hbcu campus versus i felt like i had to perform or be somebody else when i got to a pwi yeah and and that i think that code go ahead yeah. go ahead no, that code switching is real. One of the things that one of the things that Sharana I would say about historically black colleges is that his, the one of the things that I think about historically black colleges all the time is that historically black colleges are ultimately cultural centers. Mm. All because the because the the center the the HBCU is centered around the black experience, the totality of black experiences. And there are ways in which like we need to grow, right? I would say that HBCUs need to do a much better job of thinking through the concerns of black women, given the given the amount of black women that are, that are at HBCUs and the and the levels in which they operate as staff and faculty, but also the ways in which black women um, get treated on campuses, particularly around domestic violence, rape, and sexual assault issues. Mm-hmm. I think that I think the HBCUs could do a much better job of how we handle LGBT queer students and supporting our LGBT queer brothers and not throwing them brothers and sisters and thems and theys and not throwing them back into closets and making them feel bad because this is who this is who they are. And you so I do think like I do think but ultimately HBCUs are a cultural center. Like they are they're they're places where students teach, they're where students are taught, they're places where students uh, come in contact with themselves, they're places where students get to have an identity that is not about their not necessarily about put making their racial identity the primary engagement tool. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it is the place where they get decided if they want to be cute, bougie, and black, or if they want to be Afrocentric and black, or if they want to be Afrocentric, cute, bougie, and black together. And then on top of that, you know, on top of that queer, or they want to be black and radical. Do they want to be black and Republican? I think that's the beauty of the HBCU is that the HBCU gives students an opportunity to consider their identity. And I think when I went to, when I left McAllister College, and headed off to Clark Atlanta, one exceptional university, um, you know, so famous for, you know, the shows that you watch, like Blackish and School Days, you know, mm-hmm. just yeah, things just, that you yeah, do just a few. in your life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, you know, I think that one of the things that HBCUs gave me was an opportunity not to be Black Sean in the classroom. I just got to be Sean. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a whole nother... Mm. And, and that pretty much explains why you know, I personally feel like almost every black student need to go have that HBCU experience because it is like yep. your your cultural center to the world. Like, you know, at a, at a PWI, you do have your cultural center for the campus. But when you get to that HBCU, it's like that's your, like you said, that's your cultural center to the world. This is where I come to kind of find myself and figure out who I want to be, what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you just venture off to wherever you feel comfortable. But you got to come here to find, to get yourself together first. Yeah. Got to do that yeah. first. <laughs> well, and I mean, I think that that's why I encourage students who have gone to like, you know, PWIs to consider HBCUs as a part of their PhD, yeah. masters, are you know, are are professional degree, and I've had a number of students who've gone to Howard, from Duke and from UNCW, or I've gone to Meharry, or I've gone to like um, to Morehouse Med, um, or you know, or any of the, of the HBCUs because they do there there is value in those educations, right. and there is and there, and like on some level, just like a cultural center. HBCUs have a special, I'm going to call it an anointing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, A special anointing to heal those identities that seem to be at war with each other. You get to be black and smart and like, um, and like Van Halen and like hip hop. Like I, I, I think, I think the one thing that I loved about the HBCU experience was that it was the first time that I could see that we we could be in solidarity, but it didn't need to be homogenous, right? right? Like, right. Because the kids from the kids from the kids from Lower Georgia were very different from like the kids from like Seaport, like from Savannah mm-hmm. and Clark were very different from the kids from New Orleans, and which were very different from the kids from Texas, and very different from the kids from Baltimore, or the kids who was from fresh fresh from the continent of Africa, like or who were second, first or second generation mm-hmm. Dominican, like you know, like it was just real. It was just a beautiful environment to walk into a sea of blackness and never know the kind of blackness that you would experience because there, it, and there, you know, like because there was critical mass of y'all, and like you knew it was gonna be there was more than one version of you on that campus, so you could find your little bougie yeah, clique, you could find yeah, your yeah. little right. Your little hood click, and you could still be a PhD student, right? I love that. That was amazing. That was. That's why I want to go back, y'all. That's <laughs> listen, listen. I but I, I can't miss go back it. in COVID because y'all they ain't got no money. So. <laughs> right, right, right. I definitely miss the environment. <laughs> that's for sure. Now, when we when we're looking at the challenges you already face, right? So you you uh-huh. as a uh, black black male or black female on a predominantly white campus are already having some challenges. 
Then we add in like some of the recent events, like the shooting um of Ahmaud Aubrey, who was just jogging mm-hmm. in his neighborhood. Who was jogging while black? Right. Like <laughs> added to the list. Added to the list of things we cannot do. Don't jog in the neighborhood. Don't breathe while black, baby. Yeah. Don't. You can't do none of this. Don't you get no Skittles. I need you to pick a different candy when you go to the store and then take your hood no off hoodie. as you walk in. All of these different kind of things. And I'm and the the difference is I can think of being at okay, working at a at a majority black school when those events happen, we can have real open conversations. It's it's when we yeah. walk in the door, everybody is equally mad. Everybody's looking at each other like, Did you hear what happened? This is what my mama said. This is what my daddy said. Miss Deuce, this was going on. They they want to have conversations. What does that look like at a predominantly white institution? And and the reason why I'm okay. comparing it to in particular is um when when Obama won his first term, I had just graduated from pain. So I'm uh-huh. I'm at the predominantly white school when he wins. And I'm sitting in my apartment by myself and my tears hit my black cheeks and it was just a magical moment. But when I got to campus, I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh y'all not happy. <laughs> that wasn't a good thing. But I'm you know, I'm seeing across on social media where HBCUs are having parties on the lawn, they're so happy. So then I think about yep. in, in you know, in the reverse, when a killing like this happens and you as a black student walk around campus and you full of rage and anger, but everybody else walking around like, hmm, didn't even know it happened. <laughs> Sorry. Well, okay, so when Obama was elected, I was at Duke um as a grad student and it really honestly depends on the demographic of the school because white school, what no one tells you about white identity is that white people aren't all the same either, right? Like they, we think of them as one, one homogenous group. I think black folk think of them as one homogenous group because we only experience the worst of them and we are reminded that they are, that Karen is bad. Like she just can't <laughs> come to Wakanda. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but like, I think that when I was at when I was at Duke, every the white kids wanted to hold our hands and sing "We Shall Overcome" as though we had gotten to like a postmodern reality where race didn't matter because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be left off the hook for their for their like racialized racist behaviors, right? Like they did, like they wanted to love. They wanted to like as one of my friends said it all the time. Like, what I noticed about white folk was that they loved Obama, but they did not love black people. Like, it's the same way with hip-hop. Like, they love hip-hop. They love the cultural idiom. But they don't like black people. Like, they don't like black people. Mm. And what would happen, they'd be like, oh, my God. Like, it was it was funny. Like, they would be like, oh, my God. We voted for Obama, too, right? Oh, my God. Um, can I be in your study group? Um, no. Well, you're probably not smart enough yeah, to be in my study group. Yeah, probably- that's it. That's it. Oh wow! So you real racist? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, yeah. so like that was that. Now now flip flip that to where I work now, um, and y'all can look up where I work now. I'm not gonna call their name because then I look. I, I like my job. I Say really that. love my job. <laughs> um, so so I'm on my on this. I'm on a a, a, a a more southern campus that doesn't have the kind of international students that that school had, and I have a large. Republican student body. I think of it as conservative, but maybe maybe other people don't. So like when the day that Trump won, like the cultural centers had so many people stopping by to see, like the black kids was mad. 
But the Latinx kids, because their cultural center is right beside ours, were in tears. And the LGBT students thought the world was going to, like, it was like, it was a very heavy moment. Mm. And, like, I remember the night of the election, one of my Black students ran into the office because we were watching the results. And he was like, I'm a Christian, and I was with my friends, and, like, they were so happy that oh um that trump won and i just was like but i'm your friend like i'm your friend how is it that you know me know my life intimately but you still voted for trump and so like students are like in a cultural center setting like uh just like just as you heard one of your colleagues talking about um white identity um development black students are also developing along black identity as a part of their college experience and hbcu students are too right Mm -hmm. But the reality is Black students at PWIs are facing that in the face of, of, a, of predominantly being in predominantly white space. In HBCUs, they're coming into their, mm-hmm. uh, their own identities in the absence mm-hmm. of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't know how whiteness affects. Like, they, they don't know that, like, when the buildings are falling down, like, the brick is falling off the, off the wall, that no black person intended for that to be the case. They don't know that that's like, that's the face of white supremacy on their institutions. Or the fact that like their, their computer systems don't work and that everything is slow. Cause that like, cause white, whiteness wants to strangle black institutions. White supremacy wants to strangle black institutions. Mm-hmm. So like, on, but, but like on a, on a predominantly white campus, like students are having to deal with like lynch ropes coming up, being called the N word to their face. Um, you know, being told they're not smart enough to be in a class, professors calling, telling that, telling other students it's okay to use the N word. Uh, like they're going to parties and having to decide whether they should stay, like because the music is gonna come on. And ultimately, like everybody's listening to, you know, listening to the baby, and so they're not gonna, they ain't gonna they leave drunk. it out. They and, and probably high, right. and so they're not gonna stop saying. The N word just because one or two of y'all here, mm-hmm. so so like that's the kind of that's the kind of work that Black students are doing on predominantly predominantly white campuses that is like exhausting, and so you know as a cultural center, our job is to help them make make space and time for themselves. Um, I tell students all the time, you need to create your own community. You don't have to accept the fact just because you go to a predominantly white school doesn't mean that you have to put yourself in harm's way to experience the worst of white people like that's that ain't helpful for nobody because mm-hmm. that trauma then has to go to you got to go to counseling mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not separating the, the the two kinds of people or, or the several different kinds mm-hmm. of people you just putting everybody in one box and and that's it but isn't but then yeah, it's also and, traumatic research, and research in the 90s showed that black students who went to historically black colleges actually had a healthier sense of self so that when they got in the workforce, they weren't offended by, um, by, by white folk as much because they, they had coping mechanisms that were, they, they knew who they were. They were, they could leave the office and then go find their black friends. Like if you will notice with black student, black folk who have been in historically black college spaces, like they are, their friend circles are wide. Like they're, they can go anywhere and see a familiar face. Black students in a, in a population of 72 black kids on a campus of 8,000 or 10,000, if they don't like each other, I mean, I mean, they, the alternatives are Becky's. Mm-hmm. 
I remember my mom said on when she went to Penn State, it was almost like this feeling. It's not no almost like there was a sense of depression during the winter. And she said it because <laughs> she yep. saw the people was white and then the, the, the ground was white with snow <laughs> and the trees white. It was just like white everywhere. Oh, and she said, if you goodness. saw a black person on campus, you would connect eyes like, where have you been? Who are you? It's so good to come, see you. Please come be my friend. <laughs> yes, it is a black person. And you know, I, yeah. I I wouldn't I wouldn't I would not wish that experience on anyone. And and it's it's goes back to the conversation I used to have with my students that would say, oh, well, I'm not going to HBCU because the whole world's not black. But the whole world right. ain't white then, either. But what you Yeah, but what's so hilarious about that is that they think the real world is white. Right. And it's not either. Mm-hmm. Like I just feel like like your your world can be black. I, I mean like here's my world, right? Like I went to school, I studied black things, and um, I then worked in black places. And then I like I get paid to work work with black students. Work I get I get paid to be black, like and not like just black as like a superficial blackness. I get paid to be black culturally. I get paid to curate and design and create experiences and teach. And like, I get to be like, I get the overdose in blackness. Mm -hmm. I get to be black for pay, Mm -hmm. like as a career. So I hope somebody out here listening realizes that when they tell you that your Africana studies degree does not matter or that they don't know what you're going to do with your little degree, I want them to realize that like Africana studies degrees go to law school, but they also run cultural centers. And as you will know, Sharad, like it takes a special skill set to run a cultural center. You you can't just you can't just play with a cultural center. Otherwise, you're gonna be sitting in trouble, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and like at every possible level. So like that's the one thing that I would say that people don't realize about a cultural center is that cultural centers have this beautiful way in which they really can be infectious. And they can they can change the university the perception of a university. Um, one of the things that I think is hilarious because I unlike your mom's experience, Sharon, mm-hmm. my students probably break down into about three different categories. I I, I use the analogy of BET, MTV, and CMT all the time mm-hmm. to describe it to like my white peers. So BET are my students who make they're all black every day, everything. They don't do anything but black. <laughs> and so like those are the centers who live in my cultural center. They're gonna be on all the programs. They probably chairing three or four different black things. And if you say you have never been to the cultural center, they're gonna side eye you. Mm, mm-hmm. Then I got, you know, like that's BET, that's black entertainment television for you. Mm-hmm. Then I got MTV. And those are my students who kind of teeter-top between lots of different spaces. Yeah. They'll be in the Latinx center, they'll be in the Black center, but they also have lots of white friends and they don't, like, they kind of are everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say that the, um, the newest, largest group of Black students coming into our spaces are, um, are not them, but they're these, there's another group of students that I call CMT, which is like my country music television. And you know how many black people watch country music TV? Um, not many. So um, so again, you have these kids who are choosing universities. They don't want to be associated with black people. Like they are running from black spaces because they've only been the, the token. They've only been the one black kid. And that is so familiar that that feels like normal, even though they don't know that like other black people exist and like are having amazing experiences. So they, they do the work 
of white people for them. Like, so they isolate themselves. They're self-isolating. Now, they'll tell you that they're having great experiences, but when you start to ask them about, like, how they see other Black kids, what you see are these vicious stereotypes of other Black of black people that they perform for to confirm white people's understandings of Blackness. Mm. So, like, it's a real ugly, like, ugly, like, way of saying things. Like, I'll give you an example. I've had parents call me and tell me, like, I'm sorry, we we raised our kid to think the world is multicultural. We're sorry, he's probably never going to come by the cultural center. And we're sorry, we, we're just realizing, like, this is a mistake, and he's going to look back on this and see this as a mistake. Like, I've had parents get have that conversation with me. Or I'll look at a Black kid who will tell me, I never stepped foot in there because the Black people didn't like me in high school. And I was like... It's okay, baby. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, oh, look, boy. And it made me... It, it, <laughs> I, okay. I remember having a student in high school who was... Oh, I know, Palmer, I know there's a term for this. <laughs> he mm-hmm. was the token black kid with the clique. Okay? Mm-hmm. To the point where... He didn't mind that the white kids said the N-word around him. They were, they had a nickname mm-hmm. for him that I'm not going to say because then he'll know we talking about him. But <laughs> they had a nickname for him that was actually a racially charged nickname. But if you tried to tell him, like, you really shouldn't let them call you that, it was, it was mm, no, fine. No, it's like, it's, it's good, too. right? It's all fun and games. Fast <laughs> forward. Like they can call me Negro Billy. Yeah, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah. They call me Negro Billy. They cannot call you they cannot Negro call Billy you because that. then they're going to walk around thinking they can call everybody Every, Negro right, Billy. Right. <laughs> right. And so now, fast forward, I can tell in the conversations that I've had with him recently, he has run into racism mm-hmm. in a punch you in the face way so you had racism going on around you but it mm-hmm. it wasn't that serious these my friends everything's fine but then you met that white person that you don't even know i ain't met you we not cool you can't call me that oh no yes yes they can't that's that's what they think that's that's what you've run into now it's punched you in the face yeah and so that's that's why when you say like the parent is thinking like oh that wasn't a good idea oh yeah absolutely i've seen it where no this is not a good idea because this this appears harmless but it it's not. It's going to have consequences. Yeah, racism is not harmless. Racism is insidious, and like we need to name it. In the it's racism um, to use the terms of like black queer brothers and sisters, it is death dealing. Racism is death dealing. Uh, I, and I need if everybody we was at to church, hear that. Be like, notes I'm putting in. My, it I'm is, putting it in my notes. <laughs> Let me put it in my that, notes. Is not it is not to be played with. It appears in harmless forms, but the tentacles of racism didn't start when you were born. This mug been going on 400, 500 plus years, and it shifts, it morphs. And if you are, if you don't study race theory, if you don't study and have it in your diet, like I'm not saying you got to major in it, but you got to ask the questions like. How are black people, if you are black, you need to ask all the questions about how are black people affected by X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because it shows up in our lives. Like it shows up in the fact that you don't know why your student loan debt is imploding and your white classmates can buy two houses and three cars on a salary and y'all both make the same. Actually, you make less, Mm -hmm. right? Like it doesn't, you know, but because nobody told you that like, 
just them being white mean, could mean that their interest rates are lower than yours. Mm-hmm. It could mean that you could have the same, like, like some of the stats are real crazy. Like the fact that a black man with a master's level or higher, a professional degree or higher, makes in this country, this, across the a life of their life, the same as a white male dropout, ought to scare you in terms of like the the lived experiences of black folk and it's only when you're looking at these sobering statistics mm-hmm. that you like like i think y'all were talking about like hope but like i recently i've been reading around afro pessimism so i've been reading like sadia hartman and like these other these scholars who who argue that like racism fuels the economy, which is why people want us to go back to work and die, because there'll be work to do if we die, because we will die and insurance companies will pay funeral homes and funeral homes will have to bury people. And that means people lose their land or they lose wealth equity and they lose housing values. So like all their property gets snatched because nobody can pay the taxes on it because we don't have wealth to pass on. Like, so like there are real, like, unfortunately, like, I mean, and we know this with the prison industrial complex, like black bodies are often ground up. And so like, I do think like when you meet black kids, I do think one of the challenges that I worry about with black kids who don't think critically about racism is that they're also most likely to be harmed in those all white spaces because they can't recognize danger because they think that white people are going to be their friend when they're in trouble. And I can only speak from my experiences as a student and my experiences, um, and my experiences in this field, is that I I find that white people, when faced with with acknowledging what racism is, they will protect themselves over over standing with you because it's like they don't have to stand with you. It's a privilege. It's it's part of white privilege. Mm-hmm. So like it's easier to call you a drug de- a drug head that you had pot and you, you were smoking weed your grades were bad in school and you had a gun in your pocket when they shot you dead in the back of your in the back of your head walking down the street and videotaped it and then they screamed that they were you know were feeling for that they were scared for their lives even though the videotape shows that they're not scared for their lives they're actually making the joke um so like there's like but like those like black kids who are in white spaces sometimes are in very dangerous spaces and don't even know it, and they're also going to be asked lots of questions. They're usually the guinea pig for those for those students. And the funny thing is, when I have polled my white students who take my class, they'll be like, "I don't know." They, I was like, "Would you do this? Would would y'all act like this with, with if y'all were like?" If you were at an all black, like if you were at a party with all the black students, would you use the N word? Every student for ninety percent of the students would be like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, I ain't getting my tail beat." <laughs> oh, so again, they know better. They know better, but they get they get the privilege of not having to live in our world right. like we live in theirs. I'm sorry, I'm just talking, look, so you know I'm long. Uh, uh-uh, because so look, just... look, I know. Let me tell you how this works. Let me tell you how my mind working. I already said in, in my mind, I'm ask Palmer everything I can go through. I, I don't care if this thing going for two hours and I have to make it a two part series, part one, part two. Don't even worry Come about on. that because one, one, when I catch you, I gotta make sure. Let me get it, get oh, yeah, everything yeah. I can. 